This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to World Christianity in New Books Network. This podcast is for those who would like to explore the expansive discourse on world Christianity as a global phenomenon and as an emerging field that examines Christianity's cross-cultural, diasporic, and transnational manifestations by paying close attention to the underrepresented and marginalized expressions of the Christian faith in the global South. Thank you for joining me today. I'm excited to share this interview with you all. I'm your host, Byung-ho Choi from Princeton Theological Seminary. And I'm your host, Sun-Yong Lee from Princeton Theological Seminary. Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire, written by Helen Jin Kim and published by Oxford University Press in 2022, explores the story of modern American evangelicalism through its relationship with South Korea. With the outbreak of the Korean War, the first hot war of the Cold War era, a new generation of white fundamentalists and new evangelicals forged networks with South Koreans that helped turn evangelical America into an empire. South Korean Protestants were used to bolster the image of the U.S. as a non-imperial beacon of democratic hope, in spite of ongoing racial inequalities. At the same time, South Koreans used these racialized trans-Pacific networks for their own purposes, seeking to reimagine their own place in the world order. They envisioned Korea as a new emerging Christian kingdom that would beat the American evangelical empire in a race for revival. Yet these non-state networks ultimately foreshadowed the rise of the Christian right in the U.S. and South Korea in the 1980s and the 1990s. In her meticulous and compelling work, Kim employs a bilingual and binational approach in examining this history of modern evangelical America from a trans-Pacific perspective by utilizing archival sources and oral history from the U.S. and South Korea in illuminating an otherwise unknown Korea perspective to a preliminary American story and offers a new lens through which to understand evangelical history from the Korean War to the rise of Ronald Reagan. Over the course of our conversation today, we will take a closer look at this beautifully written work, how it sets out to make a significant historical contribution to how we view and understand U.S. evangelicalism and how scholars and students of world Christianity stand to benefit from this book. To learn more about these issues and more, please stay tuned, and we hope you enjoy the book and our conversation as well. 
Today, we are privileged to talk with Helen Jean Kim, the author of Race for Reviver, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire. Helen Jean Kim is the Assistant Professor of American Religious History at Emory University of Candler School of Theology. She teaches on American Evangelicalism, Asian American Christianity, and American Religious Landscape. Her courses include Piety and Politics, Evangelicalism in America, Japanese American Christianity, and Pacific Crossings, Religion, Race, and Encounter. In 2020, she was awarded the Provost Teaching Award for Excellence in Graduate and Professional Education and the On Eagle's Wings Excellence in Teaching Award. Professor Kim is the first Asian-American woman faculty of Korean descent at Candler. Professor Kim's research explores U.S. history and religion with a focus on the Pacific and Asian America. She has a long list of publications. Some highlights include Family Sacrifices, the Worldviews, and Ethics of Chinese Americans, published by Oxford University Press in 2019. She co-authored this book with Russell Chung and Sianan Fong. And this year, Dr. Kim published her most recent and groundbreaking monograph, Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire. Professor Kim's research has been supported by various prestigious institutions, the Louisville Institute, National Endowment for the Humanities, Forum for Theological Exploration, and Harvard University's Korea Institute, Charles Warren Center for American History and Center for American Political Studies. Her journey as a scholar started at Stanford in comparative studies in race and ethnicity, and with the Asian Pacific American Religion and Research Initiative. Prior to graduate studies, she has also worked at Google. So welcome, Dr. Kim, to New Books in World Christianity. And thank you so much for taking the time today to talk about your excellent book. Thank you so much, Byung-ho and Sanyoung, for inviting me. It's an honor and privilege to be here with you today. And I really appreciate your kind introduction. And I'm so excited to chat with you today about our book, the book Race for Revival. Thank you. And as we begin, I would like to convey again my sincere congratulations, Dr. Kim, for this um, excellent book. Um, There has been a lot of hype uh, surrounding your book since you first announced the title and the publication date. And I believe that this is your first single authored monograph. Am I right? Yeah, this is my first single authored book. Um, The other book you introduced, Family Sacrifices, um, was a co-authored book um, that we published in 2019. Excellent. Um, And if you don't mind, um, as we start off, would you like to just say a few words about the cover of your book, as it is quite an interesting uh, photograph? Yeah, I think this is an interesting part because um, I think a lot of people found out about the book when I posted the cover of it on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) And and I, I... I did not expect at all for people, so many people to respond to it, actually. Um, I think that it was, it was like a viral post, like over 3,000 like 
likes and comments and things like that. And it was unexpected, but I think people are responding to this image that is at the heart of chapter three of my book that I always found really compelling and was core to the narrative. Um, it's just deeply seated right in the middle of the book. Um, and so for it to emerge and to become the cover, I think in some ways just um, this picture of Billy Graham and his encounter with the World Vision Korean Orphan Choir, I think it's just um, people responding to that kind of deep part of the history. Yeah. Thank you for um, kind of opening up the conversation with this you know, great description of the photo, uh, the title of the cover of your book. And once again, I also want to express my uh, congratulations Congratulations on this new book, and I think it will be um, wonderful if we can begin our conversation today by getting to know you more. Uh, so, Dr. Kim, could you share with us about your background and where you grew up and how your education journey was like and how you became interested in your uh, field of study? And if I could also ask who were uh, some of the influential mentors that had shaped uh, your academic work? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I actually was born in Iowa um, because that's where my parents um, immigrated to study uh, for graduate school. And then they also were in Boston. But um, we also then moved back to South Korea. So I lived in South Korea. I did elementary school in South Korea. So um, that's how I learned the language. And that's how I learned, you know, the history and culture. And it's actually that kind of transnational movement in my own upbringing that I think started to shape some of the questions that I had in this book as well. And in, in terms, and actually my whole research vision, <laughs> which, is, which, is to, which is to, which is to set American religious history in a global context by specifically focusing on the Pacific, because this is a relatively um, overlooked uh, region as we think about America's religious past. Uh, we just have more of an emphasis on the Atlantic world, for instance, um, you know, the story of the migration of the Puritans, for instance. That's, a, that's been a core narrative in American religious history. But I think that the connections that I'm drawing upon in this book, I would like to see these stories just being core to how we think about not only world Christianity, but also American Christianity. Yeah, these just, I, I see these stories as just becoming in the future just kind of commonplace, right? Just part of our story. I talk about Reverend Kyung Ji Khan and how he helped to um, found World Vision and then Kim Jungo Muktanim. Um, Pastor uh, Reverend Jungun Kim and Billy um, Jungun Kim, and then the woman at the at, in the cover of the book, Ojiyoung um, Um She is, um, you know, she's not a very well known figure, but I think that she should just be known in our in our everyday understanding of um, what World Vision meant in the 1960s. So that's part of that's. That's part of what I hope to do with my work and my upbringing, I think, influenced that. And in terms of just influential mentors, I just have had so many, it's hard to, <laughs> it's hard to name. Um, but I will say that um, in part, just because I was talking about my own 
upbringing is that my parents, I think, um, have been, you know, significant mentors. Um, they didn't examine me in my qualifying exams or anything like that, right? <laughs> and, and David Hempton, as my dissertation advisor, really gets most of the credit for um, just spearheading my project and all of that. Um, but I think it's just it's just following them around um, the world that also is what um, shaped my questions. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for this opportunity to get to know you better. And um, in regards to thinking about your book and your journey, I would like to invite you to kind of tell us more about how you came to write this uh, fascinating work, Race for Revival. Um, and how this journey began and what led you to writing this book? I know you've mentioned how this is more in a way um, in a personal note you've you've encountered um and your journey thus far in your personal life but um you can speak to academic academically how you began i think i remember in the beginning pages how you were also actively involved um, um in raising awareness of of asian american issues um here in america and and so forth so would you like to share us a little bit more about this journey you had yeah i think there's a, there are many origin points for this project um but as i write in the preface um, many of the questions that fueled this project started, you know, when I was a freshman in college. <laughs> so um, at Stanford, I was intent on being an English literature major because I love books, I love fiction. Um, but then I encountered an alternative spring break class where you where you combine kind of community learning alongside of academic work. And that's when I started to ask questions about religion and especially religion inequality and within the Korean diaspora. And for me, when I thought about the Korean diaspora, I couldn't think of Korean America just in terms of its own kind of local location in LA or San Francisco or Atlanta, something like that. I always, for some reason, imagine its connection also to Asia and to its connection to Korea, right? That kind of transnational imagination was just endemic to the way that I was starting to ask questions about religion. So what does the Korean American immigrant church have to do with Korean Christianity as it developed throughout the 20th century? Like it just, had for me they had to be connected and i couldn't i couldn't study um korean american immigrant church or even in thinking about korean christianity i wanted to know about how then it spread from korea so that's to think about korean christianity or korea in global context Right. Even when we think about um, various periods of Korean Christianity, I want to know, well, there were actually linkages of Christianity beyond the peninsula, right? Whether it's to Japan or whether it's to America, whether it's to Russia, I want to think about not only America in global context, but also Korea in global context. And so it's just making those kinds of transnational linkages that really spurred my work. And I'm happy to talk more about specifically a trans-Pacific lens. Uh, well, I'm sure we'll get to that further in the interview, but I do want to briefly say that a trans-Pacific lens is about, which I utilize throughout the book, that's core to my you know, research paradigm in this book. 
And a trans-Pacific lens isn't just about thinking about, you know, uh, categories beyond the nation state, but the trans-Pacific lens is really very much rooted in a research paradigm that Asian American studies and its connection to Asian studies very much developed. Okay, so I write about this in the introduction of the book, but um, trans-Pacific, a trans-Pacific lens is rooted in the long formation of Asian American studies and its attempt to also bridge gaps with Asian studies. Okay, so it is very much interested in questions like race, and it is very much questions interested in questions of empire, um, and less so questions about religion. But I'm a, I'm a religious historian, <laughs> and so for me in this book, I'm bringing religion, especially using uh, the fields of American religious history and world Christianity, then to bring it into conversation with Asian American studies and Asian studies. Okay, so we have a very kind of interdisciplinary paradigm when it comes to trans transnationalism and a trans-Pacific dimension. And it is also what distinguishes this project from others, which is to say that when I think about American religious connections to South Korea, I'm not just thinking about what are, you know, um, here are some interactions or um, here are some places where they met, something like that. No, I'm saying that these stories are intertwined. They're absolutely intertwined. And so I want to reimagine how do we make sure that we are constantly seeing these stories as intertwined and that's where the trans-pacific lens is really important and i'm thinking about religion uh, politics and race all together right so i think some of this will further unpack but i wanted to put that i want to foreground that because that is crucial to the way that this project is framed Mm -hmm. Wow, thank you for sharing uh, your fascinating story, how you get into your the studies and this project. And also, I really appreciate the way you uh, describe the trans-Pacific lens. It's not just uh, between countries. It's really uh, in a connection across discipline, you know, geographical regions, race and everything. And that really speaks to my research approach as well. So I hope to copy some of your uh, methodology and lens uh, with your books. Um, so as uh, but just a, a quick follow-up question. So since this is a history uh, project, the first thing that comes to mind is you know, where do we get to know about the past? So I was um, wondering what archives and resources you turned to as you wrote this book and how was your writing uh, experience uh, overall? Yeah, I know that you're both working on dissertations. So this is bringing me back to that very time when I was starting to enter the archives, doing the field work, doing the writing, all of that. I'll have to say that it was such an exciting time, such an exciting time, because when I first started this project, I worked on it. Um, you know, in in a lot of different ways, but part of it I did work on as my MDiv thesis, and I started with Campus Crusade for Christ and just Billy, um, Bill Bride and um, Jungong Kim, and I really didn't know the story of Billy Graham Evangelistic Association or World Vision at that time. 
The way that I found out about those stories was just by pulling the threads in the archive <laughs> and starting to see the connections. There, I had, I, there wasn't any other way that I knew about it. Does that make sense? Because I didn't read about it in a book. Um, I just know that I was reading a lot of secondary sources on Korean Christianity, on American evangelicalism, where I saw they were constantly overlapping, but they weren't all talked about synthesized in one book, right? So let's say like the work of Grant Wacker, you know, he's written extensively on Billy Graham and talks about the 1973 revival in Korea, but it's not foregrounded, right? And later in, in a work like David King's on World Vision, which I later read, it came out quite later, um, he talks about Korea, but it's not centered, right? Um, and so, so that's an example where just reading through the secondary sources, I'm seeing all these links, but the way that I found out about these stories was by pulling the threads in the archive. And that's what's so exciting for me about historical research is because you just you don't you're not going to know the stories until you're in the archive. It's just there's there's no real way of getting around it. And you really you and historians, the lovely thing about historians is you can't write about something that for which there's no evidence. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? If there's no if there's no archival trail, you're not writing about it. Right. Because you're you're you are writing about the stories that you find in the archives. And so um, just pulling on these threads, and then I realized, wow, all three organizations were there at the 1973 um, crusade as well. So that happened all through the archival research. Um, I know you were also interested in the oral history piece, and um, that happened... By just wondering, you know, for instance, the World Vision Korean Orphan Choir, I read so much about them in both secondary sources and primary sources. I just wondered, are they alive? And I realized, yeah, they are. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so, so I was in, I was at Harvard at the time, and you know, I had done some research in the U.S. And I just thought, when I go to Korea for six months of research, I'm just going to go ahead and ask. And I did. And sure enough, many of them are still alive. So and I had just prepared the IRB in advance. And then just one thing led to another. And that's how I did um, interview Ojiyoung, who's on the cover of the book. And she was just her story is fantastic. And also inspired me for my next project. So um, this is just source after source introducing me to the story that it's ask I think inviting me to write <laughs> right so um I think that's what's it, it, that's the part that's so exciting about historical research is there's no way to really I mean you can hypothesize you can anticipate but you really don't know until you see the evidence and you see the archives you meet the people that's I love your expression pulling on threads and the the excitement you discover when you see something new or when you see those interconnectedness uh, the the rush you have is is quite different um I'm sure um San Young and I have uh, also can really uh, echo and you know um uh, also we feel that um that that 
excitement when we go through that. And um, I really liked how you were able to um, go through oral history. I think that's something that it's, I think, should be more um, used, utilized as well um, throughout um, um, looking into histories as well. So thank you so much for that detailed answer and for sharing about this, um, your overall writing experience. And as we kind of turn in, turn to the beginning pages of your book, um, we can see that it was comprised of five chapters. Um, this is uh, including also an introduction and a conclusion at the end. Um, and it entails a very rich bibliography um, and the list of archives and oral histories uh, you utilize for your book. And I'm sure this will be a great resource for those that want to continue on um, going digging into um, about the histories between this interconnectedness between South Korea, uh, oh, Korea and also America. Now, in the introduction of your book um, that you provide for the readers, with uh, you, you laid out the groundwork and the con context of your study um, about what it is you want to accomplish through your book. And that is, if I may quote, um, to interpret U.S. evangelical history, politics, and race through the use of a trans-Pacific lens, to set the history of modern U.S. evangelicalism in the Asia-Pacific, to connect a triad of previously self-contained conversations linking modern American evangelicalism with Korean Christianity and also connecting these religious histories to the backdrop of the Cold War in Asia, end quote. Wow, there's so much already in this um, couple of sentences. Um, I know, you know, we can just take a whole podcast to unpack, you know, what you're trying to do even in the introduction, but... Um, as we as readers understand that you'll be taking a historical approach and in unraveling this complexity. And I was wondering, Dr. Kim, if you wanted to highlight um, some key concepts that you think will be helpful for the listeners or future readers to grasp um, you know, these um, important threads, as you um, delicately put it, before we dive deeper into your book. Um, some of the things that um, that I was able to just um, notice, um, I thought was, you know, important um, in understanding the context. Uh, some of the keywords were, you know, such as Korean War, or, you know, the word evangelicalism, that, you know, <laughs> so much baggage in that word too, as well. Or even, you know, just the title of it. I love the title, Race for Revival. What is this race that you're talking about, you know, because the word race itself is <laughs> dual meanings. You know, we think of this marathon kind of race, or we also think of this race between ethnicities and so forth. So um, do you mind just highlighting some of the keywords that you think will be um, important in, in, as we dive into further into your book? Yeah, I appreciate this question so much because it is about framing the project, right? And since you both are scholars of world Christianity and are historians, um, I want to speak to how this framing of the book is connected to the field of world Christianity, as well as, as well as speak to how this book is trying to bring something new to that conversation. Okay, so... So here, especially when I talk about a triad of previously self-contained conversations, I want to emphasize that here I'm linking modern evangelical America um, to Korean Christianity, right? And there, that's very much the fields of American religious history and world Christianity. That's what I'm talking about there very much in that, in that um, connection. 
The third piece, I think I want to spend a little bit more talking about because I think it's more complicated um, for historians who are familiar with these two fields. Okay, the third, when I say the backdrop up to the cold of Cold War in Asia, um, I, and this is getting to Korean War and also what you're talking about, Race for Revival, the title. This part that I'm highlighting, I want to say a couple of things. When I say Cold War in Asia, um, that is referring to a particular kind of literature that overlaps with both Asian studies and Asian American studies. So this is really important for me because um, Asian studies and then Asian American studies traditionally heretofore have been seen as kind of um, relatively separate conversations. They developed with a separate kind of intellectual lineage. And so there has been a way in which Asian American studies and Asian studies kind of talked in separate conversations. In this book, I want to, as much as possible, try to bring these conversations together in the sense that when we talk about um, the outbreak of the Korean War, that's very much an Asian studies kind of project, right? But also Asian American studies scholars are very much interested in the Korean War. Right, so I'm trying to bring those conversation partners together and then linking them to the religious history discourse that American religious history and world Christianity is very much involved in. So when you make those links, then you're also going to be introducing concepts of inequality. So the, the, when I talk about the Korean War, when I talk about America and Cold War South Korea, this there there is a bilateral exchange there surprisingly that i talk about right like all those uh, partnerships that i'm talking about but there's also a level of inequality right and that's where the racialized elements are highlighted right and that's very much a kind of concept and paradigm that asian american studies scholars are interested in and then i think that asian studies scholars may have de-emphasized a bit, right? And so when I say this kind of trans-Pacific paradigm and I'm bringing the Cold War in Asia into conversation, I'm also going to be talking about these inequalities, right? And so as you know, especially in those early chapters, Race for Revival is talking about the racialized inequalities between kind of white evangelicals and their encounters with South Koreans, and the most devastating chapter really is chapter three, the World Vision Korean Orphan Choir. But I also, also because of that trans-Pacific paradigm, am able to highlight how then Koreans responded to that. And I see the response with religious revival um, as not only a response to the Holy Spirit and not only a spiritual response, but I also see it as a response to inequality. So it's very much kind of the when by the time you get to chapter four and chapter five, I think you see an imp, a nationalist impulse among Korean Protestants and Korean missionaries. This revivalistic impulse embedded in it is also this desire to to uplift the Korean people, right? And to reimagine the world order and to reimagine Koreans at the center of that world order through evangelistic missions, through their empowerment, through revival, all of that. That is also, I want us to see that those religious moments as very much informed by these conditions of inequality. 
in the backdrop of the Cold War in Asia. And so that's what I, I really do want to emphasize that that's what the trans-Pacific paradigm that I'm bringing to in this book is emphasizing because that's going to that's also going to be what's a bit different from other books, right? Or other scholars who may have treated this exchange before. Because when you say Korean Christianity, often in books, then you're looking at, at American evangelicalism. And a lot of times, American evangelicalism, you're talking about Korean Christianity. But um, this is kind of the Cold War backdrop that is really important for this book. And I do want to say one more thing, which is that... This is why the oral histories are important, because this time period, in the period of war, we don't have as many sources. When we talk about Korean Christianity and the Korean War, 1950s, 1960s sources are relatively rare. And I think that scholars really have to do the hard work of reimagining, reconstructing that time period and the losses there. And oral history is part of that. Um, and that, and and this is all to say that I take war really seriously because you're asking about keywords, phrases, and so war is is really important. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you for um, you know, walking us through the introduction, and you know, I really appreciate how you structured your framework, and you are really pulling threads out of this all entangled. Um, mesh that we are going to look into. So uh, I think we are ready to kind of follow your threads and I'm excited. And um, so in reading the first chapter, um, I was very uh, much captivated by uh, your in-depth uh, study on the early history uh, of the widely uh, known organization, World Vision. And it is, it's fascinating trans-Pacific history. So here um, you take a special care in not only talking about American figures such as Bob Pierce, recognized as the founder of World Vision, uh, but also bringing into the limelight um, Korean Christians that are often overlooked, such as uh, Reverend Gyeongjik Han and Kim Chang-hwa, who are also indispensable in the formation of uh, World Vision, thanks to your um, research. Uh, so Dr. Kim, can you say uh, more about uh, these two important figures, Gyeongjik Han and Kim Chang-hwa, uh, what their involvement was with Bob Pierce, and how crucial was the Korean War in the formation of uh, World Vision? Yeah, I think that this chapter just needs to become common knowledge. Um, I want this chapter to be one of those things that we just know in the American Academy. It's not like a basic fact, right? I don't want this to even be kind of an innovative chapter. You know, I want this just to become common knowledge that World Vision was founded um, not only by Bob Pierce, but by Kim Jong-un. It just this just needs to become just like the way that we know the 18th century evangelicalism emerged with George Whitfield, um, Charles Wesley, John Wesley. We know those basic names, Jonathan Edwards, and then with, you know, Catherine Breckis's work, Sarah Osborne. Um, we just need to know Han as just like a basic um, figure. He just needs to become part of common knowledge, and so um, he because he did. Um, found or co-found um, World Vision, and David Schwartz also talks about this in his book, right? And so, you know, I want for us and our research just to, for this to be common knowledge. This shouldn't be like a discovery. Nobody made this discovery, right? It just was. 
And actually, when I did the research in Korea, it just like so many people at World Vision were like, yeah, this is part of the story. So the fact that a lot of Americans didn't know about it and it wasn't in American literature, scholarly literature, that's what I found problematic, right? We should just kind of know this. And that's the part of this chapter that's different and new in this chapter for me in the sense that I'm also talking about why we didn't know the story. And part of it for me is the inequality. Why did why did Han's name get buried? Why did why don't we know also because Han is an elite, right? A religious elite. He went to PTS. Um, you know, he's a well-known figure. But why don't we know about Kim Chang-hwa's story? Or um, his wife, Pego Kyun, right? And then about her four daughters that I have there, um, the picture there. Um, we should know their stories. Uh, just those everyday people's stories who helped to spur a the one of the largest evangelical humanitarian nonprofits in the world today. Um, I wanted to know why we don't know their stories. And part of it also was was realizing that um their stories weren't represented. The whole trans-Pacific piece again, right? In the way that the story was then narrated, in the American context, is that their names were left out. So in the literature um, that World Vision circulated, but also in in depictions, representations of it, like the documentary Denman on Furlough, is that that when I saw that, I was in Korea at the time when I saw that documentary, I thought, I think this documentary is about Kyung Jae Khan. It's about Kim Chang Hwa, right? It's about Pego Kyun. And then I started to map the documentary to the actual empirical data and I just see how it didn't match right and so thinking what what is this whole discrepancy about and so for me that has to do with um, the power imbalance yeah between um, America and Korea but also um, specifically American in the 1950s, we call them fundamentalists, but who eventually become American evangelicals and then South Korean Protestants. Um, thank you, Dr. Kim, for that answer. And I fully echo what you said, that this should be common knowledge um, within the academia. And again, this is what, what we as uh, or Christianity scholars try to do in the field, you know, shine light on, on, on sources or on figures, on important importance of these um, stories that uh, have been overlooked, marginalized, or even glossed over oftentimes. So um, again, I echo what you, your answer. And thank you so much for um, for answering that. And now kind of segueing into the second chapter, and I love the title and, and the contents of this as well, because I think it will resonate with a lot of the stories of international students and also American immigrants as well. Um, uh, immigrants from Asian ethnicity, Asian background. And here you titled this chapter as Students, Immigration, Conversion, and White Fundamentalism, 1950 to 1960. Um, it was in Intriguing to see the story of Koreans entering into the U.S. during the post-Korean uh, post War uh, immigration period, um, in which a portion of those that entered the U.S. would be also students um, with 
I don't think we don't talk about this enough as well. Um, and in this chapter, you direct our attention to Billy Jung Han Kim and uh, Jun Gun Kim as well, and both who had entered the U.S. as students and lived in, again, two very different locations, uh, but will later, be- later become influential Christian leaders in Korea. Um, and if it's all right with you, Dr. Kim, I would like to focus um, the following question on uh, Billy Kim, on this figure as well, um, for the sake of time. Uh, for our readers, again, um, so much depth to both figures, but right now, um, our attention, I wanted to shift our att- attention to Billy Kim. Uh, for those who are familiar with the modern history of Korean, of Christianity in Korea, his name might be familiar, as he had served as the charismatic translator for Billy Graham uh, during his revival crusade crusades in Korea. Um, I, I think I remember seeing videos of those uh, Billy Graham crusades in Korea and standing next to him is um, Billy Kim as well. Um, for me, it was interesting to learn more about this, his background, uh, especially during his time in what you frame as the Jim Crow South uh, during the 1950s. And Dr. Kim, do you mind sharing more on uh, Billy Kim's time um, at Bob Jones and and this and the Jim Crow South? Um, what effect did his conversion to Christianity have, especially uh, on his understanding of American democracy? How he combined these together in his understanding of what Christianity means and also what American democracy mm-hmm. meant for him? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. This this is. This is a hard. This was a hard chapter, mm-hmm. right? This was. I mean, some of these stories. That's the thing about being in archives. Is some of the stories you don't anticipate they're hard when you encounter them, you know. And um, one thing I want, in terms of just the the research contribution that I want to highlight, because you mentioned it earlier, before I dig into the question, is that I do want to emphasize that with this chapter, I want I wanted to focus on students, because there are so many Korean immigrant students <laughs> throughout the 20th century. And if you, if we could just pull that as a thread, okay? And we just, you know, whether it's like, um, yeah, I mean, Han, but also figures like um, Kim Hwalan or even Yun Chi-ho, who um, Chris saw, my colleague at Emory, he's writing extensively on Yun Chi-ho. And um, he was the first international student at, at Emory. And we can just we can just take this thread. And also there's a religious history thread to that. Yeah, right. And what we specifically talk about Christian education and the Christian leadership and then national Korean national leadership. There's a whole story there that I want us to. It's embedded in all those books, um, you know, William Yu's book, even Chris's book. So I, I would love to just. I want to say that I would love to see a project <laughs> that builds off the chapter two. That's about Korean student immigrants. I I know there are some dissertations on this, but I'd love to see then also the emphasis on the religious aspect. The religious history and Chris and I have talked about you know what it would look like to foreground that in a project um, so yes um, Billy Kim in the Jim Crow South at Bob Jones I just a couple things because I think people just need to go and read the chapter because it's it, there's so much there um, but but part of it this is a hard story because Bob Jones Bob Jones is a racially segregated private fundamentalist Christian school and it does not allow black Americans to enter the school 
And they, um, and yet throughout those decades where they are racially segregated, they have, this was what I was surprised about when I saw the albums and I did the research is that they invited so many Asian international students to their school. And so um, I study the, the racial dynamics there in that kind of exclusion and inclusion. And yet it wasn't as if Billy Kim's time there was, a, you know, a walk in the park. <laughs> this was a very difficult time for him as well in the kind of Orientalism that he experienced at Bob Jones. Um, and in some ways, you know, th- that racial background and tension and challenge is also informing how he thinks about American democracy. And he has, in fact, to answer your question, a very positive view of American democracy in spite of all of the ways that American democracy is failing when we, when we specifically look at race. But he very much incorporates that into his understanding of Christianity. And so... What I see from his example is that um, Billy Jong and Kim exemplifies a kind, and especially through that kind of educational experience, a kind of Korean Christian sensibility that also sees um, kind of U.S. military intervention or the Korean War in a relatively positive light. Right, so kind of threading that political history together with the religious history to create a kind of theological vision that does see um, America in a very positive light alongside of God in a positive. So God and America um, is being intertwined and, um, and uplifting both at the same time. Right. And I think, I think, you know, that it, that has to, we have to, we can't just take that perspective for granted. We have to think about how that was formed. Right. And I think it is formed through moments like this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for uh, sharing. Um, and also, I really appreciate and uh, your uh, questions. You uh, raises the powerful questions that leads to an intriguing uh, stories. And uh, chapter three, um, in this chapter, you also trace... Um, Trace the history of World Vision Korean Orphan Choir. And this chapter shows us that the um, grand narratives in history often extend um, their reach and influence into our daily life experiences, uh, such as children's choirs' performances we applaud and the media stories that um, drew our attention. And this chapter uh, literally blew my mind um, as I uh, as it reveals the choir's untold history entangled with Cold War diplomacy, racial formation, Orientalism, and the U.S.-Korean relations. This chapter even sheds light on the shadows uh, behind the children's singing and um, smiles. Um, and I found it fascinating that you uh, interviewed one of the uh, choristers uh, you mentioned earlier, Oh Ji-young, who also appears on the cover of your book. So with her story, um, you, you presented history um, in a vivid and a very powerful way. So um, Dr. Kim, would you tell us more about the Orphan Choir, and I wonder how you got to encounter got how you got the encounter um, its history, and how your interviews with the choristers shaped this chapter. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the first chapter where you're seeing even more in full force what I mentioned earlier in our interview about Korea and Korean Christianity in global context. 
Because the exchange isn't just that Bob Pierce went to Korea or that, um, you know, Billy Graham went to Korea, but the, the Koreans in the 1950s and 60s were coming to America and they were traveling the world. And so we had to think about them as global characters, including these children. They were doing cultural diplomacy. Okay. Wow. Let's acknowledge that. Okay. These children. Um, some orphans, and then some who weren't actually orphans, right? As I reveal, um, part of it is um, a kind of philanthropic uh, representation, right? And so, but these children are doing cultural diplomacy, right? And uh, threaded alongside of um, a missionary vision, right? To share the gospel with the world, right? Um, and, you know, Oh Ji-young has her own critiques about all of that. She thinks that later on that she could do better um, evangelistic missions through her um, work through Joy Mission. But um, she's getting early exposure to that through the Korean Orphan Choir. Um, and so I just want to first say that this chapter is, is also such a challenging chapter. There are so many shadows like you're talking about, but I first want to say that this is Korean Christianity um, in global context, okay? And um, in, in, in the children doing also Korean cul- cultural diplomacy. <laughs> so, um, so, so we have to acknowledge the work that they did and and also, this is kind of this. I, I do want to just say this because lately there's all this whole K-pop craze. <laughs> yeah, and you know, K-pop it's being so global and all that. Uh-huh. But there, there's this whole long history of um, young Korean people um, singing for the world. Wow. Okay. That's... And hey, the Korean Orphan Choir is part of that history. <laughs> wow. Wow. So it's not just BTS all of a sudden, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> also, it's also the World of Ukraine Orphan Choir who laid mm. this background, right? Of just representing the nation, um, representing what's best of the nation, and um, just these wonderful performances. And so I, I came to this work, though... Um, not from a religious history perspective. First, I wanted that's how I that's how I've narrated it. But first, I actually found out about this through all this other literature on Korean adoption. Yeah, and then I saw the religious threads, and then I wanted to um, work on them from that perspective. Um, but there's a whole literature on Korean adoption that is um, intertwined in this chapter. Um, but yeah, as you also know, it it there's a difficult story of inequality there, right? And I think we have, to, yeah, I that was really hard to write. But I, you know what I said, like we have to know this, and that there's this joy um, with the choir, but there's also these shadows, right? This hardship, this extreme hardship. And I think that was representative of the kind of Korean Christianity that's forming in this period, too, in the 1950s and 1960s, as they're rebuilding in the South, is that there's this exuberance and excitement and expansion and revivalism. But also there's this deep sadness, right, that's there. And so I wanted to be able to capture 
all of those dimensions. And for us to be able to celebrate the revivalism, but also to be able to say, hey, there's a, a shadow there too that we have to pay attention to and reckon with, right? So let's let's look at all of it. Yeah. Again, thank you for um, this this chapter, um, Dr. Kim, the chapter three is, for me, I've never encountered and never known about this uh, World Vision Korean Orphan Choir before. And this, as you said, um, has two layers, uh, excitement at the same time, this um, uh, this shadow, as you mentioned, um, that that needs to be uh, brought into the limelight uh, to be talked about and to be learned and to be uh, informed by others, by the wider audience. So thank you so much for this chapter. Um, as we move to the next chapter, it seems that you pause a little bit in chapter four. And what this means is that this book leads us from 1950s, when the Trans-Pacific Protestant Evangelical Networks emerged uh, from the Korean War, then uh, to the 1960s, where evangelicalism shaped and reinforced the ties between the U.S. and Korea. Um, then finally, we are only a step away from the 1970s, uh, the time of the massive revival rallies. But instead of going straight to the 1970s, this chapter, chapter four, takes a close look at those couple of years from 1969 to 1973. Um, here, I would love to hear more about the significance of these years, as this chapter, in a way, reconstructs a time period focusing on the individual figures, uh, namely the two Billies, uh, the Korean minister, uh, Billy Jong-un Kim and Billy Graham. And it is striking to see the relationship between the two Billies mirroring um, the U.S. and South Korean relations within and beyond the evangelical circles. So, Dr. Kim, would you tell us um, about these figures and how their cooperation and competition set the stage uh, for the coming decade of the revival uh, explosions? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think just as an extension of chapter three is that chapter four carries this in terms of the tone, the excitement as well as the shadows, right? And and it's carrying, trying to carry that into chapter four um, because chapter four is a very exuberant chapter, right? (laughs) This massive rally, like the largest Billy Graham Evangelistic Association um, revival. And just just the sheer, when you look at the sources, there's a lot of excitement and exuberance. So that's that's the kind of tone and feel of it, right? Because I looked at um, films, I looked at photos, I looked at um, just everything possible about this event. Um... And there's just this exuberance. And you see that in the whole translation experience with Pili jong and Kim and Billy Graham. Um, and you also see this kind of culmination of these three organizations that I've studied. They're all there. And that surprised me. I didn't know that. I had no idea. I had no idea that they were there. Because I studied first the 1973 crusade um, in a seminar with Al Rabato when I was studying as an exchange student at Princeton for a seminar. Just one semester with him, I studied the 1973 um, crusade and just studied the um, translation and then connecting it to these kind of broader diplomatic relations. And then when I went deeper into the archives, I saw that World Vision was there. I saw Campus Crusade was there. It was this culminating moment. So I wanted to bring all of that together in this chapter. But also, as you know, there's, again, these deep inequalities and also revival in the context of political authoritarianism. 
so that's again another shadow that we're bringing into this is that how do we talk about this extreme moment of exuberance alongside of this very difficult political moment right so i i feel i it's really important for me in this project and that's again the triad that I'm bringing earlier that I was saying, I'm bringing in the American evangelicalism, the Korean Christianity, but also the difficult part of the Cold War in Asia that continues in this time that's linked to inequality, that's also linked to um, the rise of Park Jong-hee, right, as a political authoritarian. And so um, I, I wanted all of that to be there. And that's how I also interpret the cooperation and competition (laughs) because um so nick harkness has this wonderful chapter on the same event in his new book glossolalia and i encourage you to read it and he's really there focusing on the linguistic aspects how they're translating going back and forth going and um he also talks about how it's this moment where billy jonglin kim comes to the forefront and you know it's as if he owns this revivalistic moment, not Billy Graham, right? It's like almost this like indigenization moment. And at the same time, I also saw in the sources and doing the oral history with him and going really deep into the archives, they found that there's a sense of competition. The sense that actually not just am I, not just that it's, you know, Korean Christianity is being highlighted, but it's almost, it's not just, it, it's not just being highlighted, it could supersede it could supersede the power of the American evangelical kind of center, right? And there's this great exuberance and excitement that that's a possibility. And when you have 1.1 million Koreans and as well as American soldiers there, but primarily Koreans there, the revivalistic moment, it, it, it creates the sense that Korea could be, can, can reimagine its place in the world order as well. Right. So religious history connected to kind of this nationalism and connected to also trying to uplift themselves um, in terms of these unequal relations um, with America. So um, that's where kind of the race for revival, the other meaning of race, (laughs) kind of this race to beat the American evangelical empire emerges here in chapter four. Right. Is that okay? this kind of evangelism and revivalistic fervor as a way to to outdo outdo American Christianity. Yeah. And so I think I see this as both a, a moment of empowerment for the Koreans and for someone like Billy Jong-un Kim at the same time that it's also creating a kind of religious setting where it feels as if you have to compete. <laughs> And I see that competition as being is being highly informed by the geopolitical situation. Yeah. And so it would be a different situation, I think, if it was if we didn't have that. Um, but yeah, we have to we have to set that religious historical context in yeah in in the context of those geopolitics. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you for your great answers, and I really appreciate it um, that you unpack this time period not on just the national term, but on a very tangible, in a very tangible way, uh, following the figures. And yes, um, now we arrive at 
Chapter Five, um, the 1970s, and of course, there's no way not to talk about Explore 74 um, in South Korea and other massive evangelical rallies. So you titled this chapter "Explosion," and they were indeed explosions, um, not just in terms of the numbers of people, but actually, um, but uh, also in terms of their influences in shaping the international and domestic politics across. Korea and the U.S. Um, so as I read the chapter, I kept thinking of an image of a butterfly making an airwave small, which turned into a tornado years later. So thanks to your fascinating storytelling, um, this chapter walks us through how Chun Gong Kim's announcement at Explore 72 in Texas uh, eventually gave rise to a trans-Pacific Christian right. Then the Christian right positioned evangelicals as the mainstream in the political scenes. Uh, it is indeed an eye-opening argument. And I would love to hear more about the Christian right, especially as you put it, the politics of the Christian right and its relations to the politics of revival. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, as as you mentioned, this chapter is titled "Explosion," <laughs> and it does have to do with just the the sheer numbers, right? Because we're seeing with Expo seventy four more than one point one million. You know, it exceeds the Billy Graham um, evangelistic crusades and then into WEC 1980 and just this series of revivals after revivals after revivals. And I just wanted more research on the revivals themselves in the English language. Um, and so that's why chapter four, chapter five, I devoted um, um, my attention to them. Um, I think on uh, so many different things to say on one level because of the whole trans-Pacific paradigm. And because I also was trained um, in 18th century transatlantic evangelical Christianity, you can't study, you know, history of Christianity or American religious history without, without knowing that history. And that 18th century history is always emphasizing the revivals, right? The awakenings, the series, a series after series of revivals in the Atlantic context. And I think that something similar is happening in this trans-Pacific context, right? A a completely different time period, a completely different setting and cast of characters, but a series of revivals that are happening across kind of national lines, right? And are happening in conversation with one another. And this is also chapter four, chapter five. I think this just needs to be kind of common knowledge. I, I want this book to you know these pieces and anything that anybody else says in connection to just to be part of like facts like everybody should know what happened in expo 74 or the bgea crusade in 73 um not just in korean christianity but in american religious history this just needs to be basic facts yeah because how because um you know grant walker's book america's pastor we've talked about this you know um he has the picture of the billy graham crusade 1973 um in the middle of his book but does it go into it extensively right and he said you know when we talked he said yeah centering that sounds like a great idea because how could we reimagine that history when we centered that right um john in chapter five john turner um has this book on Campus Crusade where he talks about Jung Woon Kim. And again, it's just, it's just like maybe a chapter, 
um, but we, in talking to him too, it's like, well, what would it look like if we centered that story, right? What it would look like is that um, we just know so much more about the connection between American evangelicalism to Korean Christianity, but also just that these things just become common knowledge. Um, Darren Dochuk also writes about Expo 72 in his book, From Bible Belt to Sun Belt. And I, I just thought, you know, if you know about Expo 72, you have to know about Expo 74. <laughs> so, um, so that's one thing I want to say. Um, the other piece is that's the religion. I want to emphasize the religious historical piece and the revivalism. But again, this is coming back to what we were saying with chapter three and chapter four is that there's also this shadow right that comes alongside with in the geopolitical context the political context and so that's where you also see um what i talk about in terms of a formation of a trans-pacific christian right because um jungung kim and i think in the korean christian context this is relatively common knowledge is that you know he was working closely with Park jung and cre- the creation of the national prayer breakfast um and you know, I was just thinking, what does this have to do with the American context? Because um, the National Prayer Breakfast was very much connected to Bill Bright and Campus Crusade too. And um, I think if we're thinking about this religious history transnationally, we also have to think about the political history transnationally. So um, that's that's what this chapter is getting at. I think there's a lot more to say um, about chapter five. <laughs> and I think that both in terms of the religious history and the political history, because again, what we're saying about chapter three is you see this global moment building, but it's only just expanding at this moment, like at a rapid rate, at a very, very rapid rate. And so I see this just as a launching point for, a, a, I want even more conversation around all the other threads that emerge out of these moments, right? Um, and and just to emphasize that we can't just talk about like this American evangelical religious and political moment as just a national moment. To see how it connects transnationally, and then by the same token for Korean religious history and political history, how it's connecting transnationally to America and to other places. So. Um, I hope to, I hope to see actually how that, how we can expand that story, um, to all these other global connections. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Kim. I'm myself, as I'm listening to you and, um, as we traced your book, um, so far from chapter one to chapter five, I love how it just keeps on building these these themes and how they're all you know they're not all separate times of history moments of history but they're all a continuation all intertwined together into uh, understanding the broader picture at the same time putting these different puzzle pieces together in formulating one big picture i think your book does such a tremendous job in doing that and i just want to thank you um so much for putting those together and um um, I already, um, after chapter five, we're going into your conclusion and your conclusion um, for both Sun Young and I is very, was very powerful. It, it was a brief and concise, but very rich in depth. And it is also where you 
the book title um, reveals, as you you know, constantly mentioned, the layers of meaning. Um, I appreciate that you bring history to the present and show us how today's struggles are the fruit of the past. But at the same time, the past can guide us to overcome um, those struggles as well. So, would you tell us what changes you hope to see in the future as your you know book opens up a new way to understand the race for revival? Again, the dual meaning as well um, across Korea and the U.S. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think just, you know, there are different themes of Explore there in the conclusion. And I think just maybe I'll center my comments um, on the title. Because I think by the time you get to chapter four, chapter five, you realize this is an extraordinary phenomenon. Right. And it needs to become just common knowledge in the Western Academy. but it's from both a religious historical perspective and a political historical perspective, it's extraordinary. And so um, my main, how I came to the title was really in concluding my book, because um, I had so many different titles. And um, this one is the one that stuck because at the end of the day, in reflecting on the religious and political history, I thought, um, yeah, this story is about a race for revival in terms of kind of American evangelicals, especially white evangelicals, positioning themselves as um, holding the mantle for revival and positioning themselves in a more superior position, right? Um, at the at the same time that as I've exposed throughout this whole book, Korean Protestants were helping them to build the very movements that they constructed. <laughs> Right. So so when we know this history, you realize there were so many other actors and it's actually not quite empirically correct to say that the American evangelicals and specifically the white evangelists that I study um, actually held ownership over the work that they did. They weren't the sole people responsible for it. As I show, the Korean Protestants built it like the World Vision Korean Orphan Choir built world vision okay <laughs> we just need to know that as a fact and accept that empirically so just be, so so it's a critique of that sense of superiority right kind of this positioning oneself as kind of the race that holds the mantle for revival but also in terms of the korean christianity piece is that i'm also saying that by chapter five you see how korean christians um not all, right, but the ones that I've studied here, you see this impulse, especially centered around Kim Jong-un, uh, Pastor um, Jong-un Kim, is this, this thinking about revival as a race, right? And there's a way in which that's very powerful in terms of soaking revival, but there's also a way in which it's creating a competition, Right? to be the best and then and then perhaps also then creating this kind of sense of korean christian nationalism right that's both both not only working to uplift the nation but also maybe insidiously kind of positioning itself um, against other nations right as superior right so where is there a way in which kind of the revivalistic thread of korean christianity that emerges out of chapter five is also uh, is also threaded into kind of this political vision that um, is is potentially deleterious, right? Um, and is stoking the sense of 
also Korean Christian nationalism that may be harmful. And um, what are what are the different kinds of threads we need to think about, not only politically, religiously, um, in terms of race? I think also implications for gender, right? Um, a lot of other dimensions that we can pull from there that I think we need to critique. And so um, that's where I'm heading with that conclusion, is to say that on both sides of the Pacific, um, we have we have some kind of critical thinking and reflection to do. Yeah. And so, so there I'm not to say coming, going back to the world Christianity conversation is I want to say that my contribution there is that I'm uplifting agency, right? Agency is so important for world Christianity, right? I'm uplifting Korean agency throughout the book at the same time that agency means then that when we see you in your full agentive role, that means we also have to critique Right, we can't just say agency and uplift, and then also only say that these people are models to follow. Actually, when you see somebody in their full historical agency, it means that we see the good, the bad, the difficult. Right, we see them in their full humanity, and I think for me that's a very powerful critique um, to the kind of some of the visions that you see in this book, where you. Americans are only seeing Korean Christians as models. Look, there's a lot to emulate and a lot to be excited about. But when you see somebody in their full humanity, it's it's all of it, right? And so we have to be able to also see the hard parts and the parts, the, the, the growing edges. And so from a world Christianity perspective, um, that's why I want us to also be able to see the inequalities. I want us to be able to see the the shadows. I want us to be able to see the Korean Protestant figures in all of who they are, right? The, at least the ones that I've studied here. Um, and we shouldn't shy away from that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Thank you for uh, sharing such a powerful message. And again, I only echo what Pyongho already said about your book. Um, I have been um, asked by friends, you know, who are you going to interview? And I've been keep telling my colleagues, this is kind of book that you should read. You know, don't just listen to podcast or review. You have to read um, how you narrated the history and the way you constructed the history is really powerful. So, um, the time's running up, so as we head towards the end of our interview, there are two questions I'd like to ask you, and that is, what do you hope scholars working on world Christianity and American religious history will take from your book, and what new avenues for research would you uh, say your book leads to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think for the first question, in so many ways, have addressed some of that throughout the interview. Um, And so just to synthesize and just at least highlight one or two points is um, that I think even when I was trained um, in my doctoral program, I was very much trying to think about American religion in global context. And that's what my research is, right? And that's how I ended up connecting with world Christianity and trying to understand the back and forth exchange. And the, the piece I do want to highlight there, though, is, the, is when I say the triad of conversations I'm trying to bring in, the Cold War and Asia, the third piece, is that... 
Um, there is a, a, a dimension of inequality that we still have to face and we still have to be able to talk about. And this is what I was saying at the conclusion too, is, is if we're talking about the agency, right? That's what I found so exhilarating about world Christianity is the, the agency, the argument about agency. Um, but I think agency is a spectrum, Right. And there are times when historical actors have more agency and times where they don't. Right. So so the first chapter, Han, he's very agentive. He's informing the formation of world vision. Right. But but we also have to contend with the fact that his name was relatively submerged. (laughs) Okay, so how the agency argument itself alone isn't going to tell us why. We didn't. We don't know this as a basic fact, but we do know that Bob Pierce found it. You know, so so we have to contend with those inequalities in the way that history is actually narrated. We have to contend with the inequalities that still are a part of um, the expansion of world Christianity. So so what I say in in the introduction is, you know, for instance, building on Jehu Hansel's work is, you know, is very much saying, you know. A world Christianity is informing the way American religion is developing, right? And that's also part of my work. At the same time, I'm raising questions. Then why don't non-Western, non-white Christians have more of a center in American religion? (laughs) Why are we dealing with things like the white evangelical kind of um, centrality in American politics right now? Like, why is that still attention right if if non-western and non-white christians have so much power why aren't they still at the center right and i need i need us to wrestle still with those questions right like the agency but also like why aren't we where we say we're supposed to be like in the sense of in the sense of oh the demographic change is where this where we're seeing the recentering of, of world Christianity, right? But why doesn't more power lie with um, non-Western Christians is a question that I still have, and I think it does have to do with geopolitics and questions of inequality. Um, and so, yeah, new avenues for research. Just would love for us to continue to have conversations. Um, you know, at this nexus, this kind of triad that I'm talking about. And, um, you know, and, and to really bring our historical research to bear on our troubled times, right? We're, we're going through troubled times. And so how can our research um, inform and give us wisdom for navigating troubled times? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, wow. Dr. Kim, thank you so much um, for that answer and also for your time today um, to discuss your book. We have finally come to the concluding part of today's interview where um, I usually ask one final question um, to my guests and to um, for San Young and I to host you. We would like to ask you uh, this question together, and that is, do you mind sharing with us um, about your current and also your future projects um, and what you hope to work on? We would love to hear um, as you, I think you briefly mentioned that you were thinking of another project as well, but we would love to hear what you're hoping to work on in the future as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, my research vision is to set 
American religions in global context with a focus on the Pacific. And that means that I focus on U.S. religions, religious connections to Asia Pacific, and also you know, transnational histories of Asian American religions. And that's my research vision. Um, the next decades, that's what I'm working on. <laughs> right? wow. So this is just this is just the first single authored book that's doing that. And then the next projects are just continuing to build that research vision. Right. So the next project um, that I am working on toward that research vision is if in this project I focus more on religion, politics, race, on the next project is kind of religion, gender, and economics. Um, but I still but I still want to focus on this trans-Pacific context. And I still want to focus on um, U.S. connections to Korea and still want to think about U.S. religion in global context, Korean religion, Korean Christianity in global context. Right? Um, and this is going to happen through a project that focuses more on Pentecostalism. Yeah. And so and so I just want to continue to build on some of these threads um, in this book um, and continue to think about these national histories um, as interconnected and setting them in in a broader global framework. Yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> oh, those sounds like great project. And we look so forward um, to reading more of your works, uh, Dr. Kim. And once again, thank you so much uh, for being on the podcast today. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. You all are wonderful conversation partners. I have thoroughly enjoyed having this conversation with you. So and I, I really look forward to your work. Thank you so much. And yeah. thank you. And thank you everyone so much for listening to today's episode in which we explored Race for Revival, How Cold War South Korea Shaped the American Evangelical Empire, written by Helen Jin Kim and published by Oxford University Press in 2022. This is your host, Byung Ho Choi. And Sun Young Lee. Stay tuned for the next episode on the new books on world Christianity. <laughs>